And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, wherever you are on this rotating planetary sphere, which tonight is really going to feel like a planet. We're taking a journey back in time to the golden age of UFOs, and I've got an incredible guy to talk to about it, Gordon Lore. Um, I'm intrigued with that little quinky dinky, as a friend of ours used to say. Lore is going to tell us an extraordinary tale. Lore, get it? Tale, lore, story? Anyway, before we get to Gordon, let me hit a couple of news things. First of all, we are not going to talk about Judge Kavanaugh tonight. Nope, sorry guys. Uh, You can send all the email you want. I've had tons of... No, we're not going to talk about Judge Kavanaugh. We're going to talk about him tomorrow night, but not directly about Judge Kavanaugh. We're going to talk about him... And this whole thing that's been going on in Washington for the last several weeks around his nomination um, in a very different light, something that's totally out of – I can't really say that, can I? Left field, right field, we'll keep it straight down the middle. Believe me, it's part of a larger discussion we're going to have tomorrow night with James DeMeo and something called Sahara Asia a research project he has been conducting for the last uh, 30-some years. So tune in tomorrow night to hear how, in fact, the Kavanaugh appointment to the Supreme Court as an associate justice is incredibly interestingly relevant from the other side of Midnight Perspective to what Dr. DeMeo is going to talk about tomorrow night, Sahara Asia. Make a note of that tomorrow night. You want to be here. I guarantee you it's going to be riveting and something you have never, ever, ever heard before. Perspective that's so unusual. You're going to want to go to his page. Maybe go to the other side of midnight.com now. Click on the banner for Sahara Asia and kind of take a look at what uh, he's going to be talking about. Because I guarantee you, you will not have heard this anywhere else. Guarantee you. Returning to tonight, um, the first item, if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the graphic for tonight, that gorgeous graphic that continue prepared, the flying saucer in front of the Capitol, and my guest, Gordon, Gordon Lore, click on that, takes you to his guest page tonight. Scroll down under radio pictures to my items. First of all, item number one, the Russian Space Agency, as you know, has been conducting an um, investigation into the bizarre holes drilled into the uh, Soyuz spacecraft attached to the International Space Station. And their conclusion, uh, as of a couple days ago, is that it was deliberate sabotage. Somebody took a drill and drilled holes in their spacecraft. And they're now coming down on the side that it's basically, it was done on the ground. It was not done in orbit by any of the crew. I mean, that would be nuts. I mean, we're living in an age of nuts, but that would be super nuts. No, it was done on the ground. Now, they're also saying that it was not a manufacturing defect, but it was deliberately done by somebody who obviously, if you can look at that photo, uh, the drill skipped a couple, three times before it kind of dug in, meaning it was an amateur who didn't know how to use a Black & Decker. Do the Russians buy Black & Decker? They used to buy Kodak film years ago. I was stunned back then to find that when they looped their spacecraft around the moon, there was Kodak film in the cameras. I mean, why not? Anyway, um, now what's really interesting is a kind of a um, uh, appendage to this story, 
is that right after the Russians came out and said this was sabotage, NASA came out and said, wait a minute, not so fast. So there's a disagreement between NASA and the Russian, you know, Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, which I presume will be resolved sometime in the next several weeks or months, because what they're now planning to do is to do a spacewalk outside the uh, space station, outside of ISIS, outside of the Soyuz, in November, I think right after our election, after the midterms. Why are they waiting for the midterms? That's curious. And they're going to be looking to see if they can see anything on the outside, if there are holes going from the inside to the outside. I mean, this is really kind of peculiar. And we discussed some of the politics around it when we brought this up a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to wait for more information. But the fact that the Russians say it's sabotage and NASA says, no, it's not, I find very interesting. So um, we'll just have to see how that plays out. Item number two, uh, Musk, SpaceX, announced with great fanfare that its first mission to the space station in the Dragon spacecraft, remember that's the name that Musk picked for his manned or human personnel spacecraft, the Dragon, um, is not going to take place now until June of 2019. Does anybody remember what I said when he was talking about sending two astronauts around the moon, two civilians on the Falcon Heavy in 2018. I said it was going to be, you know, postponed probably till June of 2019. And then he kind of uh, uh, made a, made a sudden change and said, uh, no, we're not going to use the Falcon Heavy. We're going to wait for the big, you know, Falcon rocket, which will delay it probably till 2022, 2023, But I said at the time that he was going to do that first round the mission with the civilians in 2019, not 2018, which was the announcement, because 2019, June of 2019, will be 19.5. See? Get it? Get it? So instead of going around the moon, the first SpaceX mission to ferry astronauts to and from the International Space Station will be in June of 2019, according to the schedule which is 19.5. Moving on. Item number three is really peculiar because ever since there's been this real push to go to Mars, ever since that there seems to be a a real dynamic to get off our you-know-whats and get out into space and go to Mars, from time to time there appear these kind of show-stopping papers or stories or editorials saying, They're all going to die if they go to Mars. Well, the latest one, which is item number three, Georgetown University Medical Center apparently has done a study showing that astronauts will basically die of cancer in their gut if they go to Mars without radiation shielding. Now, is this really new news or is this old news? I don't know. So it's item number three, deep space travel could destroy astronauts' guts Take it with a grain of salt, very large grain of salt, because, again, for every positive story that we're going to really get off this this little bergy bit, get into space and do something interesting, there appears to be a counterforce story which says, no, you're all going to die out there. you got to stay home. Don't you dare go there. Because, of course, it's what's out there, which leads us to story number four. Story number four is very interesting. 
this came out, you know, in in the last uh, uh, few weeks uh, after the Cassini mission about a year ago was deliberately um, put into the atmosphere of Saturn to prevent it from either crashing into Enceladus or hitting the rings or whatever. So they didn't want biological contamination, particularly for Enceladus or Titan. So they deep-sixed it into the atmosphere about a year ago uh, this month. In the meantime, they've been looking at all this incredible data. Now, you know the last year of the mission, or the last several months, the Cassini spacecraft was literally uh, going through extraordinary uh, um, perturbations in diving between the planet and the rings, like in that couple thousand mile wide gap between what's called the D-ring and the upper atmosphere of Saturn. And they made 22 close orbits with all instruments acquiring all kinds of data. They would scream around the planet and then dash back out into space and then they would turn the spacecraft around and they would send the data back on the high gain antenna. And they've been now looking at this data for some time. Well, story number three actually impinges on a presentation I did in Bleeds, England, many years ago. I'm trying to remember whether it was a 2009 or 2011. It might have been 2011. Anyway, I gave a, a speech in, in Leeds with um, you know full-court press and lots and lots of graphics and images and all that. And I've never done it here. I've never done it domestically because I wanted to kind of test and see who was paying attention. And some people have. They've asked me from time to time, when are you going to do an updated version for your American audience? What I discussed and laid out as an astonishing hypothesis based, again, on some really amazing Cassini imaging that uh, showed what apparently is an artificial set of constructs, which frankly look like tall, towering glass skyscrapers, miles high, located in the rings of Saturn. Now, I know that sounds wild and kooky and crazy and all that, and you won't be able to check me on this unless you go to the raw data file and start looking for yourselves. But in the coming um, uh, weeks and months, I'm going to update our Cassini Saturn, um, you know, uh, Moon with a View series that we stopped updating many years ago because I was kind of waiting for Cassini to take data and send it home, and I didn't want NASA to kind of get upset and say we were anticipating or not take data because we were looking or whatever. So I kind of pretended we had forgotten about Saturn. Deliberate political move. They've now come out with this remarkable, incredible story because in addition to measuring radiation fields and magnetic fields and the concentration of dust and the vestiges of the upper Saturnian atmosphere in those 22 close passes, they also were measuring something they called ring rain, apparently material from the D-ring, the innermost ring of Saturn, is all the time being slowed down by, among other things, atmospheric um, uh, uh, perturbations, atmospheric drag, and like any re-entering satellite in Earth orbit, eventually they all come back in. This stuff is literally raining down on Saturn in about an eight-degree wide band straddling the equator. It's not symmetric. It's kind of shifted north because of the magnetic field of Saturn, apparently. But anyway, they're calling it ring rain, and it amounts to something like 
10 tons per second of material is re-entering or entering, can't re-enter if you haven't ever left the planet, so it's entering the atmosphere under the shadow of the rings, under the central ring plane, 10 tons per second. Now, with a planet as big as Jupiter, 75, or not Jupiter, Saturn, 75,000 miles across, you know, 10 tons doesn't sound like a lot, but that's every second. So you multiply that by 60. That's, you know, 600 tons per minute times 24. How many thousands of tons in a 24-hour? In other words, the rings are losing mass into Saturn. And the D-ring should be depleted. I haven't seen numbers yet on the depletion rate, but I'm sure that NASA's got those numbers somewhere. They just haven't kind of published them yet. But what this means is that the rings cannot be eternal. They can't be billions and billions of years old. Thank you, Carl. They have to be much more limited in time. In fact, I saw one number based on another study. But the rings of Saturn could be as little as 300,000 years old. Babies in a solar system billions of years old, for the rings to only be 300,000 is, is astonishing. I mean, it's crazy. It means something bizarre and catastrophic happened in the close vicinity of Saturn, and the rings were the result. Well, here's another data point to filter into what I said to my audience in Leeds and what NASA is not saying, but is certainly providing appropriate background to allow you to reach your conclusion because it discovered as part of the ring rain with the analysis instrumentation on the Cassini spacecraft, which included plasma measurements and actual dust measurements. When little dust grains were collected in this instrument called the dust collector, <laughs> very logical, they can do an analysis of the chemical composition of the dust grains. And what they found in addition to what they expected to find, which was lots of water and ice and hydrogen and stuff like that. They found all kinds of organic compounds, including methane, which should have long since evaporated from the rings if it was ever there in the first place, which the models say shouldn't be there. So what's going on? Well, NASA doesn't say, but I'm going to plant a, a thought tonight. Is it possible that what we're seeing is the organic debris the detritus, the resulting byproducts of the decomposition of biological systems that once were established in the rings and are now degrading, and Cassini was seeing the effluence, the organic detritus, the organic waste products, the, the biological endpoint of decomposition of those former ancient cities in the rings. One more data point and then we'll move on. They were able to calculate based on the trajectory of Cassini and the motion of the ring particles themselves that this increase and decrease in these organic products occurred on the same cycle and the same time frame that several bright clumps of ring material that were unresolved in the Cassini cameras because they you know, were so far away and the Cassini cameras only had so much resolution, that kind of thing. These concentrations of material in the rings that normally look kind of uniform, these clumps 
appeared time to coincide with the increases in organic material in the ring rain. I mean, this is just wild, wild stuff. Is it possible we're looking at the literal decaying products, again, of an ancient Type II solar system civilization which was here before us? Stay tuned. Finally, item number five. In the last uh, 12 months or so, from December of last year, December of, um, actually it's not 12 months, it's just you know shy of maybe 10 months, um, there was a major story, two major stories in the New York Times relating to secret government activities, a la the Pentagon, looking into UFOs. Well, those secret activities came to light and were published. There's a story here, um, which is number five, Equating the resurgence of UFO stories in 2017 and by autonomy 2018 to, to reflecting growing American anxieties. I mean, isn't that like mainstream writers? You see an uptick in UFO stories and suddenly everybody's afraid. Reminds me of that very interesting classic 1950s film where they ended it by saying, keep watching the skies, keep watching the skies. Anyway. That kind of leads directly into what we're going to talk about tonight with my guest, so let me introduce him without further notice. Gordon Lohr began his professional writing editing career as vice president, assistant director, and secretary treasury of the newfound National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP. doesn't exist anymore, but in its heyday, it was the world's largest UFO organization headed by the late Major Donald E. Kehoe, U.S. Marine Corps retired. In the mid-1960s, Gordon was responsible for heading a large scientific network of subcommittees, which lent his expertise toward solving one of the primary mysteries of the 20th century and beyond. Gordon played a prominent role in the first-ever congressional day-long hearings on UFOs in September of 1968, working closely with the late Dr. James E. McDonald, J. Allen Hynek, and many others to bring the subject of UFOs to the scientific community and the general public and the political leadership in Washington, D.C. Moore was an uncredited science advisor to the late director Stanley Kubrick on his seminal science fiction film 2001 Space Odyssey in 1967. Well, we got to ask him about that. He is the senior author of Mysteries of the Skies, UFOs, and Perspective, Prentice Hall, the first ever book based entirely on the early history of UFOs, and the sole author of Strange Effects from UFOs, NICAP. He also edited UFOs, A New Look, The UFO Investigator, and the UFO Research Newsletter. Gordon has written and edited hundreds of published articles on the most mysterious scientific puzzles of all time. I would agree with that. His latest book, The Early Family of Newfoundland, I'm sorry, yeah, The Earl Family of Newfoundland, and The Birth of a Canadian Atlantic Providence is now available as a Nook book on the Barnes & Noble website. Well, we can go into to Gordon directly. You can read the rest of his bio. So without further ado, let me bring on Gordon Lohr. Gordon, are you there? I'm here. Could I make a little correction? Sure. The, uh, the book that's on the Barnes & Noble website is The uh, Priest of Kali, about the Hindu mystic Ramakrishna. And the uh, Earl family book can be... Uh, gotten through DRC Publishing in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
Okay, well, we can make a correction and post that on the website as the evening progresses or for the archive. I want to jump. I want to jump. I mean, this is an incredible trip down uh, memory lane for me because if you go back to radio with pictures, are you on the website, Gordon? Uh, no. Oh boy. Yeah. See, I only have one hand here, and it's hard for me. To... Oh, because you're holding the phone. Yes, yes. We we could not I'm make a Skype connection, phone, yeah. so you're on the, on the phone. Well, I tell you what. During the break, what you might want to do when we reach the bottom of the hour, you might want to put the phone mm-hmm. down and then get on the computer because there's a very interesting image of me back in 1964 sitting with Thornton Page, David Morgan, John Fuller. And James McDonald, a very not drive behind the ears guy, sitting on a couch at George and Margot Early home in January of yeah, 1968. I'll be darn. I remember George Early well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was one of my best friends. He's he's in fact the guy who introduced me to Nightcap. So let's take a let's take a time machine and go way back in time, and talk about a young Gordon Lore. When did you first look up and realize there's something out there that I don't understand? Well, actually, uh, um, I had three sightings, actually. And the first was in um, the summer of 1955. And I was sitting on um, the half-mile-long Chesapeake Biological Laboratory Pier where the Patuxent River meets the Chesapeake Bay in Solomon's Island. Uh, which is where I was brought up, when I saw a large light heading toward me coming from the mouth of the Chesapeake across the Patuxent River. And then I saw an outline of a large dish-shaped object which suddenly dove into the water, then rose back into the sky and headed straight for me. As it flew over me, I saw a bottom panel open, and the UFO sprayed me with what I called at the time a Patuxent shower. Then it rose straight up and disappeared, and that thing really scared the hell out of me. Now, right across the, the the river was the Patuxent Naval Air Station, where a lot of astronauts to this day still train. And uh, I called them, and they said they had nothing uh, up that would resemble anything like that. And then there was a second sighting, which occurred on April 2nd, 58, and I was returning home from Baltimore, where I had a where I was a student at the Peabody Conservatory of Music when I saw a large white light hovering over a barn. Then a few minutes later, it began blinking on and off, and it followed my car for most of the uh, remaining miles to uh, Solomon's Island. Then it stopped and hovered over another barn. Then a minute or so later, it started to perform some fantastic maneuvers. In an instant, it would appear at one end of the sky, then a split second later, it would reappear at the other end of the sky. So wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You say reappear. Did, mm-hmm. did you not see it move from one position, or did it disappear in one place and then reappear in another part of the sky? That was pretty much it. It, it just reappeared so fast, my eyes couldn't follow it. And it did, did this for half a dozen or so times. Then it stopped, and suddenly I saw a brilliant, large red light that came out of the sky and merged with the larger light. At this point, my car radio began a loud screeching sound, and as I approached the Patuxent River, the light crossed the river, headed south, and disappeared. And then 
uh, nearly seven months later, on November 20th, 1958, I was standing outside my father's oyster house at about 5 o'clock p.m. when I saw a red streak of light hanging over the river. And there were about uh, 15 or so other workers with me. Then we saw three large, slender, cigar-shaped objects that were moving slowly over the river and then uh, on the opposite side. Then a fourth, much larger object appeared seemingly out of nowhere that dwarfed the other three UFOs. As, as we all watched, the large object began expanding from both sides at once. Then it quickly rose up into the sky at an estimated 20,000 or so feet. Then it changed to a silvery disk and disappeared at a tremendous speed. And then the other objects followed suit. And I sent all three of these reports to NICAP, and uh, I became very interested in that. And, of course, uh, when I met Dick Hall at a, at, at, a, uh, coffee, at a folk song coffee house where I performed, he hired me uh, at, uh, on the staff at NICAP in, uh, I think it was April 1965. Hmm. So, so, Gordon, we only have about five minutes to the bottom of the hour. I want you to give mm-hmm. people, millennials and people who don't remember anything beyond, you know, three days ago with this rush of information we're drowning in, give them from now to the bottom of the hour kind of a feeling for the times. How were UFOs treated in the media, in newspapers, on television in this period? And how did this thing called NICAP, how did it come about? Well, NICAP was formed in uh, 1956 as an organization that Major Donald Kehoe and Townsend Brown co-founded it. Townsend Brown was the first director for about a year, and then his uh, business acumen uh, made the organization start to go downhill when Kehoe took it over on January 1st, 1957, and built it up then, and it lasted another 12 years until um, it began to go under again. And, of course, that was when Kehoe and I were fired back in late December of 1969. Hmm. And uh, I think it was a CIA takeover because he had to, I know a CIA plant was on our staff, and it was partly Kehoe's thing because uh, the chairman of the, the first chairman of the NICAP Board of Governors was Admiral Roscoe Hillencoiter, who was the first director of the CIA. <laughs> you can't get he a more direct others. link than that. I know. And he, and, and uh, Joseph Bryan, uh, Colonel Joseph Bryan, was the uh, chairman of the NICAP Board of Governors uh, in, in the late 60s. Uh, he was uh, at CIA Connections. And there was a uh, person that was on our staff that had CIA connections as well. So I think it was a it was a coordinated effort to uh, finally take the organization over, and they did. Why they lasted, took so long to do it, I don't know. But uh, hmm. maybe and it's then a there measure. Was a concert in there as well, you know, during the '66-'67. Uh, uh, I was going to say, wasn't that '66? Uh, yeah. Right, and we were very involved with that. We gave them most of the information that we had in our files that uh, uh, consisting of, of good reports. And um, we, fought, we we first of all thought they were committed to doing a good job and then found out that just wasn't the case. And uh, 
so after the Conman report came out in January 1969, NICAP sort of went under um, then, started going under then. So, Well, if the Air uh, Force comes out and basically said there's nothing to see here, folks, there's no national security issues and, you know, move along, nothing to see, yeah, a civilian yeah. organization devoted to a phenomenon that the government says doesn't exist – you know, most people at that time took the word of the government. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's Tell you true. what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Um, I'm going to mute Skype so you can go and try to get on the computer so you have it in front of you. We'll be back with my guest this morning, Gordon Lore. And in honor of tonight, I picked some very interesting bumper music. Let's see if you can remember this from the period of the 1950s. hour of the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously the Kinthea, our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, 
As a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server. What I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies Room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now... Back to the show. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night. My guest this morning, Gordon Lore, veteran of the UFO years, when it all began, the golden age. You know, Gordon, I want you to really take people who have no idea what happened in those years back to where the UFO thing in 1947 kind of burst on the American scene and the effects it had on people, including you as a young kid growing up, to where when you saw your first event, your first saucer, what it, what it did to you inside? Because it must have been kind of like, oh, my God, it's one of them. Yeah, right. Well, I I first read the first two books. I was still, uh, oh, I don't know, about 20 then or something like that. But uh, um, I, actually, I was younger than that, maybe about 17, when I read uh, Major Kehoe's, Donald Kehoe's first two books, Flying Saucers um, from Outer Space in 1950, and then Flying Saucers from Beyond the Earth, I think it was, um, in 1953. And uh, I was hooked when I read those books. Then I had my first sighting in 55, which I explained earlier on. And uh, I was sort of hooked on the subject, so I started a library of UFO books and reading, and finally uh, 
had the three sightings, and I mailed them into uh, NICAP. And uh, when I first started at NICAP, uh, I was actually a folk singer at a uh, the Unicorn Coffee House in Washington, D.C. Oh, my God. In uh, 1965. And Dick Hall, the assistant director of NICAP, happened to come in there and heard me sing a folk song to a poem. I set, uh, I set the music to a poem of um, the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes called The Pedigreed Piddling Pup and Ten Piddles in a Puddle. Oh, my God. And uh, he was... He was impressed by that. He invited me back to his apartment and uh, had a few friends there. And by the end of that evening, I was hired for an ICAP and started there almost the next day. And how old were you? I was there five years. Oh, this was in uh, 65, so I was uh, 29 then. Oh, my. Gosh. Yeah. So yeah. what did that feel like? I mean, growing up, you're watching all these things. How do the papers let – me, let me start with this question – how did the newspapers, because it was basically newspapers in those days, not really television, although television mm-hmm. came in later, how did they deal with the whole subject? Well, actually, they, uh, uh, it's, yeah, as you say, there was no internet, no email, that kind of stuff. Uh, so there was a lot of newspaper coverage, much more so then is, than now, I think. Uh, because there were flaps uh, all over the uh, When you say world. flap, you mean like a sudden burst of sightings? Sudden burst of sightings that last for a determinate period of time. I remember doing the 66 and 67 flaps around the world. I was up till like 2 o'clock in the morning at NICAP headquarters fielding calls from as far as Wales, Alaska, and uh, Germany and places like that from Washington, D.C., and the mailman would bring in two huge sacks of letters every day from people wanting to know uh, more about these UFOs around the world. And really the period between, uh, I guess, 1952 right up to 1957 on up to the time of um, the Socorro, Mexico case and then, the, uh, of course, the Roswell case in July of 1947. Um, and, and and the newspapers did a tremendous job of um, reporting the news. And uh, God, you mean real journalism? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot of it, a lot of it was real journalism. Uh, some of it wasn't, of course. But uh, and uh, so we were we were really busy during those formative years in the '60s, particularly. Okay, let me take you back a few years before you joined NICAP to 1952, the summer of 1952. I think you know where I'm going with this, right? You were living. Yeah, the, uh, you were living the, in. The in white... You were you were in suburban Maryland, down on the on the shore on the river, on the Chesapeake. That's right. As a matter of fact, I, I'm looking at the at the disc uh, circling the the uh, Capitol Dome here. Uh, from your flying saucers from beyond the earth mm-hmm. illustration on your website here, and of course that was the uh, when a bunch of discs actually came over and hovered over the White House and the Capitol in July 1952. Tell people about that because apparently it was not just one event; it went on for weeks, and even Truman yeah, yeah, got it did. involved. It went on for a long time, and uh, it's not something I cover too much in my book because I, I mentioned it, but. Uh, 
I just wasn't involved in it at the time. My book mainly covers the years I was actively involved in it from 1965 to 1980. But there was a, just a tremendous amount of hundreds of sightings, and uh, and they really resembled flying discs and uh, the lights in the sky that, that dance dances over the Capitol building and the White House, and uh, it was widely covered in the newspapers and magazines and radio at the time. So politically, um, I understand eventually the president got involved. Truman actually made some statements. Looked at from the outside, before you were involved on, on the inner you know, circles of this investigation, how did the press treat the fact that UFOs kept appearing over the nation's capital in all hours of the day and night? Huh, yeah. Yeah, well, I thought they treated it fairly well and fairly accurately. Uh, it was just one newspaper article after another. And it went on for some months there in 1952. And, uh, you know, there's there just hundreds, thousands of newspaper reports about it. But that's typical of what is called a flap, where there are a number of UFO sightings over a particular area for a, a significant amount of time. And it was really, uh, uh, I think it really started the... Uh, full-scale investigation. By the way, the first congressional um, um, thing that I was involved in was in 1966. The second one was in 68, where Dr. McDonald was uh, involved, and I was involved with setting up some of the uh, material for that. Uh, Major Keogh was there. I was there. Dr. Jim McDonald was there. And McDonald, of course, was a uh, atmospheric physicist from the University of Arizona who was a good friend of ours and he stayed at our home whenever he was, he was in the uh, Washington DC area and uh, yeah I had the real I, I had the real yeah, honor yeah. of actually meeting him and there's this picture if yes, you go if yes. you go you, you see it there uh, well, I'm on your website. Where do I look for it? Okay, you click on the big flying saucer around the Capitol. That will take you to your guest page tonight. Okay. And that will take I got you... it. Okay, then just scroll down, and uh -huh. you'll, you'll see the news items under radio pictures at the very bottom, item number six, Hoagland Nightcap Meeting. Item number six. Okay. You see the pictures? Look at I just see the number six. Listen by calling this number seven one. Oh no no! Keep keep going. Keep going. Scroll scroll. Keep going. All right. Yeah. You'll see pictures just above your items. At the very bottom of that row, there's a there's a picture, an ancient picture of me sitting next to McDonald. I was very impressed with James McDonald, and I want to get to okay, him. Okay, wait a minute. I think I got it. The super group, right? That's it. Okay, I got it. Yeah, who's that? Stan Freeman there? There's, no, that's uh, the, the, Doctor Thornton Page with right? the with the eye patch. The guy that's wearing the patch. Yeah. And then David Morgan, who I think worked at uh, United Technologies. I think that's where he was at the time. Right. Then right. yeah, I see McDonald already over to the right, way over to the right, and then Richard Hoagland. Who's yeah, that kid? Uh, <laughs> Oh, what a terrible picture. Yeah, who's that young kid, i tell you. And who well, gave me that well, stupid I'm haircut? Well, I'm years old, so I, I don't look that way anymore. 
Anyway, so yeah, I want to talk in detail about McDonald a little later in the show, but let's go back to when you joined Nightcap. I mean, it's the uh-huh. most interesting way to get in the heart of the belly of the beast in Washington during this period of time. What was it that they – why did Dick Hall, who I guess was running Nightcap at that point, why did he pick you of all the gin joints to, to uh, help try to solve the UFO problem in the 1960s? All the gin joints. Sound like Casablanca. There. Exactly. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it, 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 I don't know, other than we just connected that first night, you know, like sometimes friends do. And he remained a uh, very close friend, as did McDonald, when we all got together there at Nightcap over a period of about uh, five years or so. And uh, he, he just, uh, I told him of my interest and my how I submitted my sightings to NICAP. He remembered the sightings, mm. and uh, he he was impressed by the uh, my knowledge of the subject. And he said they needed a uh, another staff member, and he hired me that same night. It was that simple. Amazing. It didn't. Yeah. It, it, and then I spent the next five years there. And then when Dick Hall left for a more lucrative position in '67, I took over as assistant director and later. Uh, vice president of the organization. Oh, my. Tried to keep it afloat, but uh, it was some uh, <laughs> some difficulty. Well, given that. the fact that we now know there were political headwinds, I, I, I want to go back to kind of like your first day, your first week, your first month, because in reading the book, apparently they sat you down at a desk and plunked a bunch of files down and said, start reading. Uh, yeah, the, 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 that happened quite a bit. And... Uh, but I, I also um, began to be the assistant director of the uh, NICAP investigator, so I wrote a lot for that. And then as time wore on, um, I also took over the uh, uh, direction of the 35 or so various subcommittees around the world. Oh, my God. And uh, So this was the preeminent I, civilian... A sighting would come in, say, from Australia or something. Well, Julian Hennessy, uh, who was also the uh, European director for NICAP, was also covered Australia. And you had people like uh, um, Paul Cerny in California and George Early in Connecticut and places like that that uh, I could contact and say, here is a sighting report you and your subcommittee could investigate and Send us a report and see what we can do with it. Yeah, that that photo That's sort of me. Of how it was handled. That photo of me was taken on George Early's couch <laughs> in Connecticut. I'll be darned. Yeah, <laughs> 1968. Yeah. So so let me go back. They sit you down at the desk and they start giving you files, and you wind up working with the investigators. Talk about the structure, because people these days can't imagine a civilian organization involved with the most extraordinary reports coming in from around the world with literally worldwide chapters or embassies or institute, whatever, and that you were at the center of the storm in terms of investigation. How did you investigate UFO sightings in 1965? Well, as I said, mainly through the subcommittees. Now, I I went out on several investigations myself and in um, South Hill, Virginia in 1967, one in Wanakew, New Jersey, and about that same year. And then there was a sighting in uh, Pennsylvania 
of what I describe as a baby UFO that landed on a parking lot of a elementary school or a, a middle school, I guess it was, and a few things like that. But but most of the time I spent uh, in the office just uh, organizing the subcommittee, uh, trying uh, getting out the UFO re, uh, investigator every month or every two months. And, uh, and that was the the national international newsletter because of course there was no internet, no email, no blogs. Yeah. So you literally typed it. For... You literally typed this thing up and then had it printed. Then you mailed it to the membership. How many members did NICAP have at its heyday? At its heyday, it had over ten thousand members, which doesn't sound like very much today, perhaps. But back then, it was a pretty significant amount. And a lot of our members uh, kept us afloat by contributing monies here and there, and uh, also by subscribing to the the uh, NICAP investigator. And uh, that's more, more or less how we did it. And of course, Major Kehoe was sort of a a hero and mentor of mine because I had read his first two books and was hooked. And then he wrote three more uh, books after that. And uh, um, I joined the NICAP staff, well, as I say, it was 1965, I think it was about April. Hmm. And uh, Okay, if we want to scroll further down on your guest page, we have Gordon Lore's items, and each item you can click and it makes it bigger. Item number one is a picture you took of uh, uh, Donald Kehoe, Major Kehoe, in front of, yes. I guess, the door of the office of NICAP. That's correct. Yeah, he's there akimbo. He liked to stand akimbo. Matter of fact, uh, Kehoe, uh, the next visual shows flying with Kehoe, with Lindbergh. And uh, Kehoe was the uh, man who organized the tour of Admiral, of, uh, of uh, Charles Lindbergh after his historic flight to, to uh, Paris from New York in uh, 1927. And uh, he actually flew the lead plane right behind right behind Lindbergh and uh sometimes the airfields got so crowded that he uh he had to go in with his plane first and slowly c- clear the field oh my god with the like wings of his plane of all the people that crowded around <laughs> to see Lindbergh land <laughs> that's a side of Keo I've never heard before that's right yeah he he did that he also organized the uh, the uh after admiral richard Byrd. Uh, discovered the North Pole. He also organized Admiral Byrd's flight as uh, a, a tour of the U.S. at the time as well. So, so Kehoe had a. Uh, of course, he was a major figure. He was a major in the U.S. Marine Corps. He even crashed his plane in Guam in the 20s and uh, got out of the Air, uh, Air uh, the Marine Corps for a while. Now he and Admiral Roscoe Hillenclear, the first director of the CIA were good friends at, at the Naval Academy, and they both graduated there in uh, 1920. And of course, he hired, uh, or he put uh, Admiral Helen Quitter as the chairman of the NICAP Board of Governors uh, there when NICAP first started. I remember so it, being very young and seeing, I think, an interview with Kehoe on CBS, some CBS news program. Uh, maybe yeah. it was Face the Nation or something. Talk about Kehoe as a person. How did this Marine major wind up 
the central figure in the 50s and early 60s in the whole UFO thing? How did how did Kehoe well, get to well, be Kehoe? what happened was that he uh, he wrote a bunch of books, mostly sci-fi stuff. You know, sort of Buck Rogers stuff. He would write uh, fictional stories about rockets to the moon and Mars and places like that. And he worked for True Magazine. And uh, True Magazine uh, published a lot of his stuff. And then Ken Purdy, the editor of True Magazine in 1950, said, called up Kehoe at his home and uh, said... Uh, are you familiar with this flying saucer stuff? And Keo said sort of, well, a little bit. I'm, uh, I'm not very familiar with it. And he says, well, I want you to cover it. There is some re some really interesting flying saucer stuff going on. And this was after the, the uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting of June 1947, where this businessman, private pilot, spotted nine disc-shaped objects around uh, Mount Rainier and described them as like saucers skipping over water, uh, bringing in the term flying saucers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Kehoe uh, was reluctant at first because he wasn't that interested. But then he, uh, then Ken Purdy sort of told him that he had better do it or Purdy wasn't going to publish any more. <laughs> the ultimate editorial hammer. That's right. That is the uh, ultimate editorial thing. And uh, so Kehoe more or less had to agree. Then he really got into it and was so interested that he published the first article called Flying Saucers Are Real in 1950. And that became one of the two or three most read articles uh, in um, the history of American publishing. And then the same year, he wrote a full-length book, expanded that into the flying saucers from, from uh, uh, the flying saucers are real, into an actual book. So he became the first author to write both an, a serious article and uh, the first book ever on UFOs in 1950, and then uh, got into NICAP in 19. Uh, Six, uh, 65 to uh, 1957, he became director of NICAP, and the rest is sort of history. <laughs> so his – see, the part of the, I, about Kehoe's background that I had never known until just now is his connection uh -huh. with Lindbergh and with Admiral Byrd. So yes, he uh -huh. was really a personage, and he knew the right people – how in an era before the internet and before easy communications, because a long distance call cost a fortune in those days, how did he do the research to to do to, to background his his books and articles? Well, he knew a lot of people: Dewey Fournay, Colonel Joseph Bryan, Hillen Coiter, and others from the Pentagon because he had been so much in touch with them. And uh, as I say, Admiral Hillen Coiter was the uh, you know his his close his closest friend at the Naval Academy, and he kept in touch with him, particularly after he started his article and book for Ken Purdy at True Magazine, and he it, and he really began get getting really interested in it, and he thought it might make a good book, and as it turned out, he wrote five books on the subject. The last one was um, Aliens from Space, uh, published in 1968. As a matter of fact, there's a picture of me 
uh, on uh, NASA's unexplained uh, file, Secret Aliens, if you ever come across that on your TV streaming, where I'm sitting in the middle uh, of, a, of the table of the National Press Club, Major Keogh is sitting on my right, and Richard Hall is on my left. And, uh, and that was in 1968. Quite a few years ago, I look quite different than mm. I do now. By the way, if you scroll down to item number five in Radio with Pictures and your items, there is Gordon, a much younger Gordon, like a much younger me. You, you look better in those photographs than I did. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, there I am typing on my book, Mysteries of the Skies. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> is, that is, is that an old Underwood? I don't know. It could be. I mean, there's a but huge. Of course, right under the picture, right under that. See me on the right there. I'm I'm uh, I'm circling the spot where a UFO landed in South Hill, Virginia, on April 21st, 67. Then the picture below that is uh, Leon Katchen, a staff member, and myself, uh, looking at a burned-out area that this UFO made after it had landed there and it took off. And then on, right under that is a picture of Jim McDonald and then Lonnie Zamora and then uh, Jacques Fillet and uh, J. Allen Hynek. I, I just uh, talked with Jacques Fillet not, not oh, about a couple of months ago. He he got a hold of a copy of my book and said he really liked it a lot. So. Oh, well, I'm loving it when I get don't, don't get yeah. distracted by phone calls and everybody well, wanted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's that final picture of myself, a little bit older. <laughs> a little bit. Okay, anyhow, we only got we only got a couple very minutes. Exciting time there. We only have a couple minutes to the top of the hour. When we come back, what I want to do is I want to talk about how Keogh went from being an author bludgeoned by his editor into doing a book or an article on a subject he didn't really care about, to where he cared enough to actually form. NICAP. I want you to talk about the formation of NICAP because I didn't realize until maybe a couple, three months ago that T. Townsend Brown was critically involved. And we can talk with the audience about who T. Townsend Brown is and why that's so intriguingly ironic and not that coincidental. So I'll tell you what, hold it yeah, there. I don't know. Hold it oh, there. Right. We're, we're yeah, at the top of the hour and we should return. Okay. My guest this morning is Gordon Lore. We're talking about ufology, UFOs, in an era when it was all brand new and shiny, and the newspapers covered it seriously. Can you imagine? We shall return.